Welcome to the Show Up Podcast with me, your host, Natalie Norton. This podcast is all about having the courage to be a really good human and living the kind of life that genuinely fires you up every single day. Are you ready to become your best self and truly show up for your life, come what may? Me too. Let's do this thing. You understand me, babe Girl, you're my best friend Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode number eight of Show Up with me, your host, Natalie Norton. Okay, I have a question for you guys and you gals out there. Have you entered to win a free coaching session or a free month's worth of life or business coaching just by rating or reviewing this podcast. If not, I want to make sure that you stay tuned at the end of this episode for details so that you can enter for a chance to win one of those fabulous opportunities to be coached one-on-one with yours truly, Natalie Norton. Now, without further ado, I give you episode number eight. Relationship 101. Alternate title, managing conflict. Alternate title, yet again, having healthier, happier relationships starting today. Alternate title, You don't have to agree on all of the things to be the best of friends or the happiest of couples in the whole entire world. Do any of these situations sound familiar to you? When you were first dating, you really, really loved what a hard worker he was. He was so dedicated and he worked so hard. And now those same qualities look to you like distraction or like he's a workaholic, right? Or maybe you're friends with someone, and in the beginning, that friendship was so fun. That friend was so fun and so spontaneous and so filled with life. And now, that same friend seems flaky and unreliable. Or maybe you felt a deep level of respect and awe over how committed an individual was to their specific values. And now, those same values that they're so committed to just seem rigid and they seem closed-minded. And maybe in those challenging situations or others that are similar to what I just described, we're tempted to jump ship. Or maybe you feel as though you have to really, really self-censor and just forgive and bite your tongue. Not to say that there's anything wrong with forgiving. Not to say that there's anything wrong with biting your tongue on occasion. Not to say that there's anything wrong with jumping ship in a relationship that may have become toxic or unhealthy. But let me tell you something that is very important as a premise as we begin this episode. You are allowed to disagree with someone. You're even allowed to disagree with someone that you deeply respect and love. Now, you are not allowed to assert dominance. You're not allowed to negate another person's feelings or their beliefs, but you're absolutely allowed to disagree. You can totally have healthy, loving relationships and disagree deeply, even about fundamental things. 
And this is easy for people to grasp in the simplest form, right? If I were to ask you, do the healthiest and happiest relationships require people to be in constant agreement? Of course you would say no, because it's impossible to be in constant agreement. But what if I talked about the big things, the fundamental things? What about agreeing or disagreeing over the biggest things in life? And if you say, you know what? Yeah, I think you do kind of have to have to have common ground there and have common values and the same beliefs and um, you can't really disagree on the big, big things. Then let me ask you this. What happens as individuals grow? What happens as they change and they have new ways of thinking? What, what happens when, when new ways of being arise? Can those relationships weather those very normal parts of adult development, right? Or... Are they doomed, right? Can you remain happy and healthy as relationships shift and come into a new way of being as individuals within relationships grow and change and progress? You can absolutely have a healthy, loving relationship and disagree deeply, even about fundamental things. Now, is it easier if you're in constant harmony (laughs) Is it easier if you're in constant agreement in the most important relationships of your life? For certain, absolutely it's easier. However, just because something isn't perfectly easy, that does not mean that that thing is broken. It doesn't mean that that thing is falling apart or doomed or any other version of horribleization. You know? Know what I'm saying? Like, let me give you a real example from my own life. Richie and I, we disagree on a fundamental level about all kinds of things. Richie and I have a lot in common, and we also are very, very different from one another. And these are about, like, important things. And is part of that because there isn't, like, a submissive (laughs) personality between the two of us? In part, probably that's fair. And is it because we were both the oldest children in our respective families? Maybe so. That's also fair. But really, I think that both of those possibilities, they, they oversimplify things pretty considerably because, you know, those kinds of statements are at least in part human creations that, that make us feel less conflicted when we disagree. Well, you know, it's just hard. They're both hot-headed or they're both really independent These things make us feel better about the reality, which is that we really do have a fundamental disagreement about certain things. Statements like those, like they're just the oldest in their family or there's just not a submissive member in that relationship. They're both really, really strong-headed. Statements like that are similar to saying, this is to be expected because, or this is just the way it is. But what if our individual tendencies to perceive the world in such fundamentally different ways are genuinely a part of our divine inheritance. What if we're not just disagreeing and struggling to see eye to eye because we both like to be right or because we're both the oldest children or because what if it really is that we have fundamental ways of being that are different from one another? Then what? So let me talk for a minute here. Let's take like a lateral step. We're going to talk for a minute here about Richie and I. It has taken many years and it has taken lots of practice to get to this point. Trust me. But 
Now, at this point in our marriage and in our lives, I believe that our differences, and not just our differences, but our willingness to embrace and celebrate those differences are essential to the happiness of our marriage. They are essential to us being as fulfilled in this partnership as we are. But it was not always this way. And I want to share a kind of silly example, but it really, really drives home the point. Okay, early in our marriage, I don't remember exactly where we'd been, but Richie and I were driving home from a date. And we went head to head over something. I don't remember what it was. But what I do remember is that on the way home from this date, while we're in the middle of this conflict, we had to stop at the grocery store because it was Saturday night and everything in our little village town on the North Shore of Oahu was closed on Sundays. So here we are, mid-fight, and my insides were just like on fire. And when we get out of the car, Richie reaches out and smiles and wants to hold hands. And I just could not believe it. It felt like the most two-faced, disingenuous thing. Two seconds ago, we were angry and frustrated on a level that we had never seen before in our relationship. And now he just, what, wants to pretend that nothing had happened or that everything is fine? No, sir. I turned around and got right back into the car. Now, Richie was baffled. And he followed me and he climbed back into the car as well. And then (laughs) I went off the rails. I remember accusing him of things like caring more about perception and how people saw us than the reality. I I accused him of being two-faced. I told him that I couldn't just pretend that everything was fine when everything was so not fine. And I remember at this point, Richie just looked at me. And the look on his face was sincerely dumbfounded. And he said, wait, everything's not fine? He was genuinely worried and he was genuinely confused. Okay, so I have to pause here for a second and tell you that if I could have really internalized what Richie taught me next, I think that it could have saved our marriage from potentially dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds, (laughs) who knows, of arguments, blowouts, and quote-unquote trouble seasons, right? You get my drift. Um, But at 21... I was just too young and I was too inexperienced to really recognize um, how valuable this lesson really was. And like, to be fair, let's face it, uh, not to discredit my husband's genius or anything like that, but at 22, Richie had no idea either (laughs) just how profound or how powerful this lesson really was. He just knew, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) And that was a lesson that Richie got. And he was willing to do and say anything in that moment to get to the happy wife, happy life situation. So again, here we are in the car, parked in the grocery store parking lot. I'm fuming. Richie is completely broken and totally baffled. And he looks at me and says so, so sincerely, what's the big deal? Which Even as I relate the story back, I can just see my 21-year-old self, and I know that him saying that really should have made me boil over completely. But there was this sincerity that was there, and it was so, um, well, sincere, for lack of a better word. It was so earnest. There you go, earnest. 
And honestly, I think that maybe that's why I even remember any of this now, all of these years later, um, like 16 years later, my goodness. His sincere bafflement is like, that's what etched the experience into my mind. And I would be lying if I didn't say that his confusion, um, well, his confusion confused me completely. I was so confused that he was so confused. And I think I must have been just confused and curious enough to stop and to listen to what he said next. Um, He went on and he explained that, yeah, we disagreed. Yeah, we had a fight, but that that was one incident. That was one topic. That was one disagreement, one, um, one experience. And that that didn't get to overshadow all the other wonderful, harmonious parts of our marriage and, and our life together. He went on and thank heaven I was still listening and not losing my, my mind like I had a tendency to do. Um, and then he pointed out to me that when we argued, I sometimes used words like always and never. Like I would say things like, you always make me feel or you never help me. And then he explained that those extremes weren't really fair and that they really weren't true. And that in this particular grocery store incident, he wasn't trying to be disingenuous. He wasn't trying to be two-faced in the ways that I had just accused him of being. He just truly didn't think that our one disagreement, even though it was important, even though it was significant, he didn't think that this one disagreement negated every other thing in our marriage. And now all these years later, what I can now see and understand is that Richie was willing to let the disagreement stay within the bounds of the relevance of the disagreement. And I had a tendency to let our fights and disagreements leak out into every area of our marriage and our lives. And all these years later, we actually created a phrase for this tendency of mine. This tendency that I had to let my emotions over one situation or one disagreement be um, the lens through which I saw and experienced all the other pieces of our relationship. And that word is horribleize or horribleizing. And you guys, we are all guilty of this from time to time, every single one of us. But some of you out there who are listening, you know that you are really guilty of this, like all the time. And if you're in the middle of that fresh realization, and if that's you, and you're in the middle of that fresh realization, I want you to take a deep breath, and I want you to let it really sink in because I promise you that this understanding can change your relationships and your life. Let's talk for a minute about horribleizing. Horribleizing happens when we take one interchange and then we apply That interchange and the way we feel and the emotions that were expressed towards us and the ones that we felt towards others, we apply those things to all other past or future interactions ever. Horribleizing happens when we allow our emotions to grow and grow and grow to the point where we really can't separate this one isolated situation from the rest of our lives. Horribleizing happens when we choose to throw out everything we know about another person's character. Let that sink in for a second. Horribleizing happens when we choose to throw out everything we know about another person's character. When we choose to erase their entire track record and say, this is the way you always are. Horribleizing happens when we choose to look at things as either or. Either 
He is my partner and my advocate and my dearest friend, or he is my enemy who does nothing but act selfishly and cause me pain. But that's BS, right? Either or thinking, either or emotions, those are always a huge indication that we are horribleizing. Here's some tools to help you see and identify ways and situations in which horribleizing may be showing up in your relationships. Um, it can show up in all kinds of ways, but remember that in general, horribleizing will be binary, which means that it offers um, only two options to any given situation. Like it's either this way or it's that way. Um, ubiquitous. Horribleizing is very often ubiquitous, and that means that we all of a sudden choose to see the issue that we're currently facing everywhere and in everything rather than within the relevant confines of that specific situation. And finally, horribleizing is really divisive. Um, And this goes along with binary in that it tells us essentially that things are either this way or that way. Um, For example, you are either with me or you're against me. And since you aren't with me here and now, you must be against me. But divisive also can be an indication that we are dividing a person from every other thing that we know to be true about them. And we're allowing ourselves then to categorize them only by this isolated interaction. And I'm not saying that we're never gonna horribleize. I'm not saying that we're not gonna have struggles and, and conflicts and real disagreements that can be really heavy and difficult, but this is the fear that I have or this is the concern, or this is something for us to think about. Let's word it that way. This is something for us to be aware of and take a look at. Focus perpetuates the trajectory of our relationships. If we're constantly focusing in every disagreement and argument that we have, if we're constantly horribleizing, then even if we're not doing that in day in and day out life, we're kind of pushing the trajectory of our lives and the momentum of our lives in that direction of horribleizing, which is really divisive, which separates us, which makes us not feel as though we are on the same team, makes us feel as though these differences and these challenges that we face are separating us. So yeah, it's gonna happen, but if it becomes a habitual and unchecked part of our lives and our disagreements, it will make our relationships unnecessarily uh, tumultuous. Um, And then all too often, horribleizing has the capacity to destroy a relationship altogether. We can find evidence of the tendency in every relationship in our lives. We can see it in our marriages. We can see it in our past relationships. Um, We can see it with with our siblings or extended family. We see it in our friendships. Uh, We see it between neighbors and in communities. In fact, really, if anything really is ubiquitous, it would be our tendency in general to horribleize. It actually does happen everywhere and in all relationships. Okay, and we can see and we can understand that, but what do we do about it, right? The best antidote that I have found for horribleizing is so simple in nature. It is so simple that you almost feel like you just want to to instinctually disregard it because it feels cliche or it feels like an oversimplification um, of something that's causing real turmoil and real pain um, in your life. But, but let me urge you here to give this a chance. 
I promise you, I promise you that I would not share this here if I did not believe that it was at the absolute heart of the issue that we're talking about here. And if I didn't believe that it had the absolute power to revolutionize your relationships and your lives. So that said, you want an antidote to horribleizing? Here you go. R-E-S-P-E-C-G. Respect. Okay, guys, real talk. Marriages, friendships, relationships, they fail. Then they fail for all kinds of reasons. But I would bet the entire farm, the entire farm, you guys, all the chickens, all those cows, that lack of true respect is at the heart of nearly every single one of the reasons that our relationships fail. And people can say things like healthy, happy relationships are founded on open communication or on um, honesty, um, forgiveness, service, right? These are all things, common goals. These are all the things that we hear, but I am confident enough to say this without any type of disclaimer. None of those things, none of those things is as paramount to a healthy and happy relationship as is respect. Have you ever heard the tongue-in-cheek phrase, I love you, now change, right? Well, I I guess I hope it's tongue-in-cheek, right? Um, Because talk about a one-way ticket to resentment and pain. Um, But this is the perfect example of the philosophy that, quote-unquote, love conquers all, which I believe, but only if by love you actually mean respect, because I believe that respect is the purest form of love that there is. Now, let me give you an example that falls a little bit outside of the realm of a marriage or an adult relationship, um, but in talks instead about the relationship between a parent and a child. Um, Because the need for respect in these healthy relationships and these happy relationships in our lives, in these relationships of trust, that's universal. The need for respect in every relationship is paramount. And this story will illustrate the need for respect perhaps more than any other story from my life. So from the time that my son Carden was just a toddler until about, let's say, the middle of elementary school, give or take, um, he was the most independent, the most curious, the most dedicated human being that I had ever known. That is to say, if by independent you mean impossible, or if by curious you mean impulsive and by dedicated you mean relentless, then yes, he was all those things. For example, do you guys remember um, that super nanny method of getting your toddler to stay in bed at night? Remember, like you essentially, you go into the room, you tuck them in, you give them a kiss, you tell them you love them, good night, and then you make it very clear that you expect them to stay in bed, right? Then you leave. The first time that they get up, You lovingly like lead them back into their room. You remind them that it's time to go to bed. You give them a hug and a kiss and you tuck them in and you leave. And then the second time they get up, you do the exact same thing, but you use like a firmer voice. I think that that was the thing. You use a firmer voice and you make the the kiss and the cuddle really short and you leave the room. And then anytime the kid gets up from the third time on, you do the same thing, which means that you say nothing at all. You just lead them back to their bed, cover them up, and you leave the room. Okay, so there's a lot more to it than that, but you get the the basic idea. So when Cardin was about two and a half, um, one night, I decided that I was gonna try 
this super nanny approach to getting my little toddler to stay in his bed. And it took me 133 times, 133 times of taking him and putting him back into his bed over and over and over again before I finally broke. And I just sat down outside of his bedroom in the hall and I held the door shut. And let's like give you a little bit of clarity here. I don't want you to think that he was miserable and that he was crying and freaking out because he wasn't, he wasn't even a little bit upset. All of this, all of this was like his favorite game in the whole entire world. So I'm sitting there on the floor outside his door and I just have tears like of straight exhaustion just streaming down my cheeks, but I couldn't help but also laugh because the kid, he really was having the night of his two and a half year life. It was, it was the best night of his life. So I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm in the hallway in the middle of the night. I'm holding my toddler's bedroom door shut. I'm like maniacally laugh slash crying through my desperation and exhaustion. And I just, I was so desperate to get to sleep. And then all of a sudden there's Carden. He's right there. The kid is standing like right next to me in the hallway And I just remember looking at his cute little slobbery smile that was as bright and as mischievous as ever it had been. But I have no idea how he got there. And so it turns out that my two and a half year old son, that's 30 months, people, 30 months. He had climbed onto his dresser. He'd broken the window's little child lock thingy. He'd opened the window. He'd kicked out the screen and then shimmied about like 10 to 15 feet down a drain pipe then just walked right in through the front door, came down the hallway to where he now found me and was standing by my side. Another time, when Carter was about four or five, um, we were leaving Costco and he said that he needed to go to the bathroom. So at this point, we were already in front of the concession line um, to get like our like hot dog and pizza or whatever. And so I told him that we would order first and then we would go to the bathroom. But um, just to paint a picture here, in Hawaii, that little Costco concession area is outside the warehouse. It's right outside the the main entrance to the warehouse. Um, So Cardin's standing there in the concession line right next to me um, as I'm ordering. And I've got little Lincoln in the cart and Raleigh's helping me collect all the food. And then all of a sudden, I realize that Cardin is gone. Like he has evaporated. He is nowhere to be found. Now, before I share this next part of the story, I just need to make sure you all know that I'm sharing this with Cardin's enthusiastic permission, okay? Just making sure we're all clear. So here I am. I'm frantic. I don't know that if I should head for the parking lot. I don't know if I should head back towards the warehouse. I've got Lincoln, who was really only about two or three at the time, and I've got Raleigh, who's maybe five, maybe six, and I've got an entire Costco cart full of groceries, and my hands are full of all the food I just bought, um, at the, like the little concession place, and I'm like waddling along, kind of pushing the cart with my elbows and my hips, and then I look up, and there's Carden, standing right in the middle of that big warehouse door, that little garage door-looking thing, and he's got his pants down around his ankles, and he's peeing on the floor. Okay, one more Carden story for your enjoyment. Just because this one is too good to not share. Um, So we're sitting in church one Sunday. I'm guessing he was probably four, maybe five. And in our congregation, once a month, we have something that's called testimony meeting. And um, during testimony meetings, parishioners get to go up to the pulpit if they want, if they feel so inspired, and um, just share whatever's on their hearts. And so 
our brood were constantly in the very, very back of the chapel. There's like a little overflow area that they open and it's kind of like a gymnasium back there. And we're constantly sitting back there because we're always late for church. Let's just be honest. And, um, so we're sitting there just like always. And I decide that I'm going to go up and I'm going to say a few words. And so I'm making this really long walk up to the front of the chapel to the pulpit to share. So I finally get all the way up there and I'm just stepping up to the pulpit when I hear like muffled shouting um, from the back of the overflow area. And I look and all these heads are turning back to see what's going on. And the next thing I know, Cardin, my son, is standing on top of his folding chair and he is screaming at the top of his lungs, <laughs> my wiener's gonna blow, my wiener's gonna blow. And this is happening as the entire congregation of about 500 people is just hysterically laughing. And I'm standing in front of them all with my face as red as can be, not really because I was embarrassed, more just because of the hilarity of the entire situation. But hand to heaven, I promise you this story is 100% true. And I guess that what was happening, I later found out from Richie, was that as I was walking up, making that long trek up to the to the pulpit, Cardin told his daddy that he had to go to the bathroom. And then Richie explained to Cardin um, that he could go to the bathroom just as soon as mom was done talking. And he promised him, as soon as mom's done, I'll take you out, we'll go to the bathroom. And the next thing that anyone knew, there was Cardin standing on top of a chair, giving a testimony of his very own <laughs> for... <laughs> all of the congregation to hear. You guys, I really could go on and on because the stories that I could tell, not just about Cardin, but about all of my boys, I, I, the, we could have an entire podcast series dedicated to those kinds of stories. But um, here's the point of sharing these things here. I want you to know that I really did try every tip. I tried every strategy. I tried every technique with that little Cardin boy, but I could just not out Cardin Cardin. And the the transparent truth there is that I really felt afraid. I felt like I was failing my little boy because um, especially as he got older, I worried that I was allowing him or raising him to be defiant or that maybe I was allowing him to be impulsive. And maybe it was simply because I, I didn't know how to guide him to be different than that. Um, I worried that I, that I was teaching him that it was okay to be discourteous or... Um, that somehow I was like, quote unquote, allowing him to always get his way because I just, I, I wasn't enough. I didn't know how I wasn't enough. I, I didn't know enough. Maybe I didn't understand enough or I didn't have enough experience. And it, it didn't matter how fiercely I loved him. It didn't matter how hard I tried. I just, in my deepest heart, felt like I was going to fail this little boy. Um, but then I had this epiphany. And this epiphany not only changed the way that I parented Cardin, but this epiphany changed the way that I showed up for all the relationships um, in my life for the rest of my life. Um, first, I asked myself if I really, really thought that my little boy was mean-spirited or defiant. And I knew that in my deepest heart of hearts, I knew he was neither of those things as evidenced by the big silly grin on his face after he kicked out the, the screen and shimmied down the drain pipe. And after I'd put him to bed 133 times, over the course of a few hours in one night, right? He was joyful. He wasn't trying to be naughty. He was really playing. He was playing a game. Then I asked myself if his behavior bothered me, and this is a big one. Does his behavior bother me because I'm really worried about him? I wanted to know if I was worried about him or 
if maybe I was worried about how others would perceive me as a mom. And when I really looked at those things side by side, I knew that the second was true. I was worried about how people would see me as a mom because in my deepest heart, I I knew that my little boy was going to be fine. But I was worried about the way that people might see or judge me and my capacity as a mom based on his, his behavior. Then I asked myself this, and this was the game changer. I asked myself how I would describe Cardin, not as his little toddler Cardin self, but how I would describe him if he were an adult man. And suddenly, words like defiant morphed. They just morphed magically into determined. And words like relentless became committed and so on and so forth until I had a list that was pages long. And that list included things, qualities such as creative, focused, generous, ingenious, ingenious, bold, spontaneous, energetic, inventive, unapologetically self-assured. And from that day onward, everything shifted because I chose to focus on those amazing strengths in my little boy. And I chose to do everything I could not just to foster those qualities in him day after day, but to respect them and to look at them with awe. I didn't want to change my son. When I started looking at him this way, I didn't want to change my son. I wanted nothing more than to help him continue to foster those same qualities with an added awareness of how those choices and behaviors would affect people around him. Really what it was is that I chose to offer my kid real respect. I chose to offer him awe and to stop resisting some of these really magical ways that he was. That's not just to say that I let him run amok. I just changed the way that I perceived a lot of what was going on. And then I showed him how he could show me and others respect as well. I gave him respect and then I taught him how to show respect and why it was important. And this kid, you guys, everything just got better as a result. To this day, that kid is the most magical spot in my life. Cardin is so creative. He is so accomplished. He is so determined. He is so kind. And I couldn't be more proud of him. And the fact is that he always was all of those things. I just chose to step outside of horribleizing and into respect. And when I did that, my focus perpetuated the trajectory of our relationship and the trajectory of his growth and his development. And above and beyond anything else, I think that that what that little boy learned was that he was loved and that exactly as he was, was the perfect way to be. And yeah, I was going to help him build some tools and some parameters to be who he was in a way that, that showed respect and care for the people around him but that I didn't want to change a thing about who he was because I believed that those things inside of him were God-given. They were divinely implanted. And I hope that that that, that story illustrates to you how we can combat horribilization, horribilizing with respect, how that can apply to our marriages, how it can apply to our friendships, how it can apply to our relationships with with our neighbors and within our communities. And now here are some very specific ways it can be done. We can combat horribilizing with respect by choosing to remove our own ego 
from the equation. We can ditch the need to self-justify. We can ditch the need to judge. And we can just seek to understand. That does not mean we have to seek to agree, but we can seek to understand. We can combat horribleizing with respect by holding on to those qualities that we know to be a real and deeply seated part of the person's truest self. We can combat horribleizing with respect by keeping emotional intensity in check. It is so important that we remember that if someone holds another opinion or if someone holds another value or another belief and that's not aligned, that they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting that, that thing that they disagree with, not you, because you are not your thoughts and your values. You are your divine self. You are pure light. And sometimes people are going to disagree with certain things that you think or that you feel. They're even going to disagree with your deepest values, but it is not you that they are rejecting. We have to remember and exercise patience. And one of the greatest tools that we have, one of the greatest ways that we can combat horribleizing with respect is by exercising that respect in the form of neutrality in situations where, where we feel deep disagreement. We can be neutral. We can be neutral about the way that the other person feels. We can listen. We can really try to understand, but we don't have to emotionally engage. And finally, we can remain focused on underlying intent. What is the person's underlying intent? Because I can promise you that very rarely is a person's underlying intent, intent, especially in a trusted relationship, like with your spouse or friend that you love and that you trust and whose track record with you is beautiful. When conflict arises, very rarely is their intention to cause pain or to cause harm. So now, when Richie and I are horribleizing, when horribleizing is rearing its ugly head in our relationship and when we're struggling through a disagreement or conflict, whether it's big or whether it's small, we remind each other that we are on the same team because that's it right there. We all have divinely implanted ways of viewing the world, of interacting in the world. Um, And each one of these ways of thinking and being and interacting in the world is necessary. These differing voices, um, these these differing ways of being and these differing views, these are the resistance that humanity and and on a micro level, an individual relationship needs to grow and to progress and to learn and to expand. And I really do think that one of the reasons that Richie and I have such a strong relationship is because we are constantly facing real resistance and having to work to stay in the space and to have the vulnerability to listen and to choose to expand and to choose to feel safe and loved inside of our relationship. And even if we don't ever agree, whether that's Richie and I, or you and I, or you and your spouse, or you and your friend, or whatever the relationship is, as long as we can choose to prioritize respect, which again, I believe to be the purest form of love there is. As long as we can prioritize respect, we can still get out of the car and hold each other's hands. Thank you so much for listening to episode number eight of the Show Up podcast. As always, it is such an honor to get to spend this time with you. And remember, 
You have one more week to enter to win our ratings and review giveaway for your chance to win a free one-hour life or business coaching session with me or if we can get the number of ratings and reviews on iTunes to cross the 400 ratings threshold, I will also be giving away an entire month's worth of coaching, which is valued at over $2,000. So go rate the podcast, go leave a review and tell all your friends and loved ones to do the same. And a couple of you lucky listeners are going to get to work with me one-on-one and oh my gosh, I really cannot wait. Now, Really quickly, if you're unsure on how to leave a rating or a review on iTunes, I want you to go to my Instagram account. That's at Natalie Norton. And there is a shared story there right at the top of my feed just for you. It's called How to Review the Podcast. You cannot miss it. And it will take you through the process step by step. Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing. And as always, I love you. Make it a great day. You make me feel like I can. I'm Natalie Norton and you have been listening to the Show Up podcast. You, you understand me, Until next time, my beautiful friend, keep showing up, keep that heart wide open, and as always, remember, your best is always enough.